We were on an expedition to Cocos Island of uh, Costa Rica, uh, fishing and diving. Uh, one day the weather was so good, flat calm, no rain, and there were a lot of striped marlin and blue marlin around. And after we caught like half a dozen, it's like they're coming up behind the boat, you see them, you know, in all their majesty and the colors all revved up, they're fired up, they're fluorescent blues, charging on the teasers. And it's, it just seemed like the right time and place to jump in. <laughs> Swimming with an animal as magnificent as a blue marlin is a dream for many of us and today Guy Harvey shares his story of some decades of art and research around these and many other incredible animals on this Ocean Life podcast with me, Josh Peterson. Raised in the waters of Jamaica, educated in England, from his earliest days, Guy Harvey has had a strong connection to the ocean that has manifested into a lifelong career of art, science, and business. With a doctorate in marine biology, an incredible natural gift for drawing and painting, Guy has pursued his passion for the ocean and the pelagic fish and sharks that make it home to build one of the first apparel brands focused on the ocean. Decades later, Guy has grown his brand into a thriving, sustainable company that funds ocean research projects that deliver new insights into migratory animals and raises awareness of their strong value to ecotourism. Stories, perspectives, inspiration. We hear it all today with Guy Harvey. Enjoy. I mean, you have such a broad and varied background of your ocean life, everything from, you know, marine biology, diving, photographing animals, and as an angler and artist, you have a line of apparel out, man. I mean, you're doing so much for so long. It's really pretty cool. Well, thank you, Josh. It's uh, It's been quite an adventure, I have to say. And um, it, it all started with, uh, I guess, you know, growing up in Jamaica, um, my family's been there for over three centuries, and luckily, I came along to uh, to parents who love the outdoors, who love fishing and uh, everything outdoorsy. Uh, we grew up on a cattle farm in Jamaica, about 15 miles from the sea, up in the mountains. So the early situation was was perfect for what was to come later. Yeah, man. So that's so cool. I mean, when I look at all the stuff you've been doing over such a, a great, rich lifespan, I can't help but wonder and, and kind of almost assume you started out <laughs> as a kid in the water, you know, doing so much. I know you come from an ocean family doing, you know, reading a bunch about you with spending so much time with your father. I'd love to hear what that was like as a young kid growing up in the water around Jamaica with a father who was so interested in just exposing you to so many different elements of, of the ocean. Sure. In fact, it was both parents. Um, my father, you know, he was ex-army, a, a very good uh, shot. You know, he taught us all the formalities about uh, hunting and um, all of the outdoor stuff related with that. But my mother was a naturalist. Um, she was a, a keen bird watcher. <clears throat> she, um, she was quite a, a, an accomplished painter in her own right. And I luckily inherited uh, this painting interest or painting gift from a very early age. And I was doing a lot of sketches and doodles. And um, the, the talent came from both sides of the family, actually. I have uh, other gentlemen on my, my dad's side who are now past who were very good artists. But my mother was probably more influential in terms of paying attention to nature and looking at things. Mm. And I didn't know at the time. I'm talking five, six, seven years old. I didn't know at the time how important that early instruction would be and combine that with the love of marine life. Um, having been sent away to boarding school at the age of eight um, to England, I 
would paint or doodle or, or draw uh, all the things that I was familiar with. And that, of course, boiled down to a lot of, of good nature, uh, good nature stuff, both land and sea. And I, I really enjoyed uh, spearfishing, fishing, and would often go out with the, the local fishermen in their canoes, you know, outboard engine driven hand lines uh, when dad wasn't going out fishing or mum wasn't going fishing. So mm-hmm. I spent all that time out there uh, on and in the water. And that was such a strong driver. It made me want to become a marine scientist. That's so cool. I mean, mm-hmm. how was that, you know, when you first started drawing the animals, did you have a favorite, you know, uh, you know, a favorite animal or a scene underwater that you would lay awake at night dreaming about and doing most of your drawing around? The big fish, the big fish, Josh, were always um, the ones that captured my attention. And, of course, where we were, you know, we had some big wahoos and tunas and uh, barracudas and, and, you know, cool fish like that. But the, the real challenge was to catch a blue marlin in those days. And, oh. of course, in the, in the late 50s, early 60s, the, the gear wasn't like it is nowadays where it's, it's so refined and um, everything is so smooth. We were using linen lines on, on all reels and, um, you know, we lost a lot of fish. So I don't think I saw my first one until I was about 16, 15 or 16 years old, uh, being mm-hmm. caught by, by uh, my mother, actually. And then soon after, my dad. And, of course, I was dying to catch one myself. I didn't catch one until I was 17. But to have that, and we killed them all in those days. There was no catch and release. Um, right. And they, they got eaten. You know, every, every molecule was eaten. But to have one to look at and to touch and to look at the, the, the anatomy and the physiology of it was, was very inspirational. And I, I really fell in love with this animal. They were powerful, um, you know, persevering, beautiful, uh, amazing predators. Hmm. And I, I painted them a lot and I refined my techniques um, off of my personal interaction with them. And then my mother gave me the book, The, the Hemingway Story, The Old Man, The Sea to Read. And it was like I related to it instantly because it, it described a methodology of fishing that I saw in front of me in Jamaica with these guys in small boats using hand lines to catch big fish. And the the version I had didn't have any illustrations. I subsequently found a version later on um, with some really fantastic drawings by an English artist called Tunnicliffe. They were line drawings, Josh. Yeah. And I was doing a lot of line drawings at the time. And said, you know, I can do a better job of this fish than this guy did. And so, <laughs> so when I was 17, between high school and university, I, t- I took a bit of a year off to, to retake some exa- admission exams, and which was an unfortunate time in my life. But um, I filled in the gaps by taking on the project of illustrating the entire book of Hemingway's Old Man and Sea. I did 60 drawings in that time. Some wow. of which were, you know, really very detailed, all pen and ink. And I sat on it for a while. And then in 1985, I had my first one-man art show in Jamaica in a, in a reputable art gallery. And the whole series became the basis for that show. And it was really my first foray into the commercial art world. I, I had no idea what to expect. But not only was it the subject matter, but the execution of the story that um, – I think really impressed people and we made some pretty good sales. Wow. And, and mind you, at the time I'm, I'm working on my doctorate <laughs> and it was all, 
It was all a, a very interesting period. Yeah. <laughs> I bet it was a pretty busy period for you there. Huh? <laughs> it, was, it was cool. And I was inspired then by my girlfriend at the time, Jillian, who became my wife. Uh, we've been married 31 years. And, you know, she was very helpful in just encouraging me to to take an artistic career, take it seriously, you know, have that as an alternative to being an academic. Yeah. And that's an interesting kind of, I don't know if juxtaposition is the right word, but there's the the black and white of science, which is as you're pursuing a PhD, you're very much it's black or it's white, you know, and then there's the yeah. creative side of art, which is there's no black or white. It could be, it's, it's, uh, it's subject to interpretation. You know, it's very different. It's more creative, you know, and that's an interesting kind of your ability to do both simultaneously and, and be good at both. You know, that's quite interesting. And it looks easy. And, and you've pursued that. You've maintained that the creative part and the more science driven part up through today as well. I didn't realize just how important the, the science would become because um, as I, as I said earlier, you know, the paying attention to the, the anatomy, the physiology of these animals was crucial in the long term. And in, in the course of doing my PhD, I wasn't just working on the prescribed species that I was assigned to work on for the project, which were Caribbean herrings and other coastal pelagic species. We did a lot of work on turtles, um, or manatees, on other creatures around the island. But in the tournament season, I was I would go to all the tournaments where, as I said before, up to 1989, we, we killed all the fish, which provided valuable scientific samples for not just me, but for all the invited um, overseas uh, fisheries research entities. And so it was a bit of a, a bonanza for us. And I learned a lot about the, the fish, and um, I must have, you know, cut open in 20 years, cut open maybe 2,000 blue marlin. To look at wow. their small contents, their reproductive strategy, capabilities, mm-hmm. Asian growth studies. Um, and, of course, you know, having the animal in front of you, you, you just get this um, visual overload, uh, which really provided a lot of the, sort of the, the formal basis for knowing the animal well. <laughs> Right, and, and so the execution of the art became easier and easier because I'm just so familiar with them. And of course, what, once my artistic career blossomed and I was able to earn some money and travel, go to other places, go to the Pacific, I spent the t- same time with all these animals and uh, diving mostly uh, and learned about other species so I could broaden the vocabulary and get it all right and execute the art authentically. Right. See it firsthand, be yeah. able to recreate it from your own perspective versus maybe a picture uh, right. somebody else took. Yeah. You actually right. felt that you saw it, you smelled it. Yeah. Right. That's interesting. Wild pictures became an important part of the underwater occupation because while you're there, you're not only looking, but you're gathering content, uh, not just for yourself, but for, yeah. as, as time would tell, for a lot of educational documentaries, which we still do to this day. And it's, it's a very good use of your time underwater. You know, when there's lots of other things you could be doing. And of course, as we might, might get into later on, the evolution of the technology we're using on the water um, mm-hmm. allows you nowadays just to take a GoPro. <laughs> yeah. And the quality of a GoPro, uh, easy to shoot, easy to use. The quality is awesome. Um, and you can use it to, to capture, um, you know, screen grabs and stuff like that if you want to, to refer to anything. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Now, when we talk about swimming with these animals, you know, back, as you mentioned, you started immersing yourself in the water next to them to get a better, you know, close perspective of them. 
you started to develop techniques that would allow you to what, get closer, capture more footage of swimming and fo- fo- you know, photographing the billfish. I mean, talk about that, sort of your evolution of this technique to get just closer and better shots with them. We were, <clears throat> we were on an expedition to Cocos Island of uh, Costa Rica, uh, fishing and diving. And uh, one day the weather was so good, flat, calm, no rain. And there were a lot of striped marlin and blue marlin around. And after we caught like half a dozen, it's like they're coming up behind the boat. You see them, you know, in all their majesty and the colors all revved up. They're fired up. They're fluorescent blues charging on the teasers. And it's, it just seemed like the right time and place to jump in. <laughs> we did. And I didn't know what to expect and, um, you know, how they'd react to me. And uh, they're a little apprehension, of course. There's you know, a ten foot long fish with a, a large bony bill on the end of his face. It's really sharp. <laughs> um, but I was I was more impressed by their coloration and their agility and the ability to turn swiftly within their their own body length and moving at twenty miles an hour and the just the the, the whole motion of it was uh, amazing. And uh, of course they didn't they didn't you know come at me or come near me. Uh, they avoided me, but they were concentrating on the food. I learned this pretty quickly. And therefore, you know, refined our behavior in terms of the boat, uh, what we did with the boat when we got the fish up to reduce the amount of wake, because the wake was your your worst enemy underwater, it clouded the scene. And to get below yeah. the wake, um, you put on more weights. So I wear a heavy weight belt so I wouldn't have to swim down. I'd just get dragged down and stay down around 10 feet, 15 feet next to or below the fish shooting up. And we did it with some hook fish as well, which is not nearly as um, exciting because the hookfish behavior, they're, they're somewhat traumatized. Uh, they're not swimming at the correct angles. Their color changes. Yeah. Um, and, they, and they're prone to sudden erratic movement. And you don't want to be in the way when that happens. Like they start jumping, uh, shooting off to the surface. So we, we kind of learned pretty early on that uh, filming hookfish was is okay, but it wasn't nearly as rewarding as filming a teased fish. And it was many years before we actually got into the water in a, in a natural feeding situation, Josh, where the, the, the fish had found prey, they got bait together. Um, and Cocos Island was a great place for that to happen, what you call the bait balls. You have billfish, tuna, sharks, uh, dolphins, all there at the same time sometimes. But that, of course, was a natural scene. Um, the, the, yeah. teasing, the teasing scenes where you're relying on the, the sort of uh, tenacity and the perseverance of the predator are... You know that's what they are. They're teased situations. You still get the interaction, very close interactions. But to go to Mexico <clears throat> or Panama or Costa Rica, um, uh, Venezuela was another great place for that. When you could still go there and get in the water with these guys feeding naturally was amazing. And at, the, at that time, the BBC Natural History Unit was filming Blue Planet, and they they called me up, and I became a, a consultant for them to access all these fish that they couldn't access. Uh, and we, we did some really cool shoots in, in the late 90s for, for Blue Planet. Yep. That's awesome, man. That's mm-hmm. like a dream that so many people have, I think, of being able to see these fish up close and personal, uh, to understand, to know where they're at, and then be able to, to tease them up and, oh, yeah. and then be ready to go to be next to them. I mean... It was amazing. Awesome. And, and, of course, the, um, the, the, the excitement of it, both above and below the water, the teasing process, you know, we learned, we, we adopted that from what we call bait and switch fishing, where you're matching your, your line class to the size of the fish that you're seeing. Mm-hmm. And also for fly fishing, if, if you know anything about catching billfish on fly, it's the same technique. 
but um, it worked really well, and and you cover the ground, you 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 know you spend the time, but we'd always go to the best places, Josh. You can't you can do that here, but you might get one one mile in a day. Yeah. You go down to Costa Rica, you're going to get ten or fifteen or twenty sailfish in a day, and you're going to be busy. You're going to be in and out of the water all the time, uh, working the, the places. So I also learned from a from the very beginning to go to the best place at the best time of year, hire the best captain, because you get the best results. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. So you're 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 in the water capturing you know content for photographs, and you're doing video for a lot of different disciplines. But you're bringing that back for your own use as well to continue your art. You know, and so how how are you able to fight and make time to sit down and then actually create something, paint or draw these animals? I mean, you're, you're pursuing your doctor, you had it, you're, you're busy doing research, you're doing all this other stuff. I mean, how were you able to slot in this, the time to just block everything out and do your art? Okay. Well, th- that's the easiest part and it's the fun part. And every time I come back from an, from an expedition, even if it's the same place I've been to multiple times, you're always seeing new stuff and, I go back to the point about going to good places because you get so many results. The same thing happened when we went in to do um, TV shows I did for five years called Portraits from the Deep. We tend to return to the same places because you, you got what you were looking for. But let, let me go back a little bit further because having, having left academia, academia, retired from the University of the West Indies back in 19. 19- 88. I'd already signed a contract with a t-shirt manufacturer in Fort Lauderdale, 86. So I was fully, I was full bore on the art now. And yep. um, it's the, the return to academia came really a decade later after the business was up and running profitably. And I could actually afford to put back a percentage of sales from the licensing back into uh, research projects. So I aligned very luckily with uh, Nova Southeastern University in Fort Lauderdale, or uh, Davie Fort Lauderdale. And the Oceanographic Center there in Port Everglades became my adopted home. Uh, It was recently renovated and uh, about five years ago, and now actually has my name on the building, which is a huge honor. Yeah, and so in 99, we, we formed this formal relationship, the Guy Harvey Research Institute, located at the Oceanographic Center, uh, Nova Southeastern University. And off we went on, mostly on, on shark research projects, because that's what's, that was what was being needed at the time. You know, the, the, the constant overexploitation of sharks through the shark fin trade was a big, big issue then. It yep. still is now. And we spent a lot of time and effort doing that. Um, and spent increasing sums of money as the business grew and we did we did better at fundraising, we put that money back into research and uh, conservation projects. But to go back to your original question about the art, when I'm here in Cayman at home, uh, that's all I do, I paint. Um, mm-hmm. I, I do fish occasionally, weekends or if the weather is nice. Right now we've got a, a hell of a cold front blowing down from uh, the northwest, so it's very rough out there, it's blowing about 28 knots. Uh, this time of year, it's very productive. You um, you sit and paint, and you wait for a good weather day to come along, and you just have to go if you're going to go diving or fishing. You just have to take advantage of, of the weather window and go and do it. But like on, on Friday, we're heading down to Panama for a week to go tag black marlin down there on the Pacific side. So the urge to fish isn't quite as compelling right now because I know I've got a week coming up 
not only will we be tagging and diving with black marlin, which is a very understudied species, hmm. but um, we'll, I'll come back again with lots of uh, inspiration to to pour onto canvas or paper uh, in the weeks to follow. I, I, I'm really methodical about the painting time, and um, it's I've, I've been doing this for 30 years. It's just it's what I love to do. Um, I don't have whims <laughs> or slow phases. I always got so much to do, Josh. I just head down and paint and yeah. i love doing it yeah uh, that's awesome man that yeah. having that passion that you can convert into you know something that it makes money that you could live off of is just kind of what that that revolves around the ocean it's like pretty much what we're all we're all seeking you know and you've been able to to put something together for yourself which well, is that's, that's quite true and it's, it's it's such a gratifying business to be in and <clears throat> we do spend a lot of time on the road doing personal appearances i mean i work very closely with a bunch of different organizations, but our, our customers are most important because without them, this brand wouldn't be um, what it is. And the support that we get from people, both, you know, from the business perspective and the research and conservation perspective uh, is very far reaching. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's just very, um, it's a very positive feeling I always get from meeting people and, and talking to them and, and the sort of rub off the, the exchange of experiences is always a very positive um, aspect of this whole, this whole project. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. That's mm -hmm. so neat. So then after 30 years of, of your art, are you continuing to like experiment with either new medium, new types of, you know, yeah. know charcoal and paint, different kind of stuff to just to kind of keep the excitement of doing something new. Fresh? Yeah. Right. Very, very definitely. Um, I have done some collaborations with other artists, um, <clears throat> Wyland is a is a very good friend of mine, and we've done several collaborations. He, of course, is probably the, the most famous uh, marine life painter of all time, very successful. Yeah. Um, and we share the same kind of responsibilities and appreciations and uh, of the ocean. And we we know that we reach people, and we can be um, spokesperson for spokespeople for um, for marine life. Um, so we, we take all that responsibility very seriously while enjoying the painting um, that we do. And we work with a lot of other um, artists too. I'm a member of the Society of Animal Artists, which is an international group of wildlife artists, both aquatic and terrestrial, and the, uh, the Canadian-based Artists for Conservation. So we're, we're all like-minded. Um, we all try to do the same thing. Uh, some have been more successful than others. Um, I've been lucky in that I've had a wonderful team all these years to work with. Uh, and, you know, our consistency um, and the, the, the quality of our products has, has remained very constant. And to that point, um, we, are, we just embarked with a, a new apparel license, uh, licensee, a company called Intradeco based in Miami. And I've been experimenting with a whole bunch of new designs for them to kind of revive the brand because in the transition mm -hmm. from a company called AFCO that we were with for nearly 20 years, um, in, the, in the downturn, you know, we lost a bit of real estate and, and standing in terms of the business. Yes. And so we, we have to recapture that real estate, so to speak. And in trying new techniques, new fabrics, um, new styles, uh, going more into ladies, for example, we're trying to revive that market. Well, we are reviving it. And um, the Renaissance is, is going to be, this will be an interesting year, Josh, for that. So I'm trying a lot of new stuff. Yeah. 
No, that's great. And I remember I didn't get a chance to meet you directly at Surf Expo. I think it was about oh. two weeks ago now. Yeah. Um, I didn't get a chance to swing by, but I saw the booth and I saw, I mean, you, just the art you had out and then subsequently looked at the lines of apparel you have and really do like, as you mentioned, like the, the apparel speaks to what you do and what you're all about after having spent just 20 minutes speaking to you directly and like, and then looking at your apparel, it's very, you could, it's, it, it exudes just the sense of just beauty and art, but also conservation, just providing a look at these animals, but in a way on a piece of clothing that just is, looks great, man. I think what you guys have out there is just very cool. Well, thank you very much. And that, that started way back in 1986. And it was, a, it was a clear open field at the time. There was nothing like that in the, in the marketplace. And the timing right. was lucky in terms of the printing capabilities for color process printing was just coming on. And uh, the artwork was faithfully reproduced on on cotton T-shirts um, like nobody else had ever done. And we had a clear shot for a long time. Um, the competition, you know, nibbled away. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> because I'm a, a very prolific artist, um, I was able to keep well ahead of everybody else. Um, and then, you know, along came all these man-made fibers, change of style, change of fashion. And we kind of lost our way a little bit. But uh, we're catching up now. And, and just a note on uh, Intradeco, I can't say, you know, they, they promoted the, the brand at the surf show that you saw very well indeed. They're all about getting into that marketing and, and capturing back the, um, the market share. They themselves are, are totally concentrating on sustainable products. Um, the cotton that they get is, you know, is sustainably grown in America. Yeah. Uh, it's shipped down to the, the several plants they have in El Salvador. And I, I've been there. You know, we did a sustainability video down there. Um, oh, cool. They have about over a million square feet of solar panels. They generate 45% of the electricity they use. They're, they're building more. Um, they recycle all the water they use in their dyeing processes. So none of it, that contaminated water gets back into the environment. They, they reuse it all. Um, they're using a lot of um, recycled plastic um, in the man-made part of the uh, the blends that they they make, and um, so there's lots of cool stuff. You know the the way they they treat their local communities. They're like um, it's just amazing. Um, they employ so many people. Yeah, uh, they take really good care of them. Transportation, food, health, all that stuff, which you you know is hard to find to this extent. Um, and this detail in a, in a developing country like El Salvador. I was really blown away. I love those stories, man. Mm. I think, too, I mean, you, you know much more than I, but as a brand, I think, you know, consumers like me and you, we're all becoming much more aware and conscious of what we're putting on, what we're putting our money and the story okay. behind the, the, the environmental friendliness, if you will, of the product, whether it's the cotton, the fiber, the rubber, whatever all that's used. I mean, I think it's important and becoming more important for any brand to be sure that the suppliers you're working with are as green as possible. You know, right. I mean, consumers start to demand that. So it sounds like you guys are on the right track. Uh, and especially the, the younger consumer, you know, my kids are all over that. My, my son works in our marketing and uh, social media side and my daughter works on the foundation side and it's you know i learn from them nowadays <laughs> about what's right and wrong yeah so, yeah, yeah. So, so it's good so you know to round off the, the sequence about the business and the apparel side the apparel is of all the licenses we do you know it's it's nearly half of our business and so it's a very important license 
And um, without that backing that base, we can't do any of the other projects. We can't do any of our research or educational conservation programs right. as, as effectively. So it all depends on being successful in the business place. And we are. We're a very successful brand. That's awesome, man. And yeah, that's just cool. And then what you do with it, and it kind of ties back to... When we come back from a quick break, we'll hear about the great tagging work and other science that Guy Harvey and his Ocean Foundation are doing to understand the lives of sharks and billfish. Stay with us. Listening to a podcast like this with stories from the ocean can help keep us energized and inspired to do great things in the ocean. And so can wearing some good looking gear with your favorite underwater scenes and animals from the ocean, especially when it's sustainably made and directly benefits research and protection. Guy Harvey's brand is just that. It looks great and does good for the ocean. So check out his art and apparel at GuyHarvey.com where you can also learn more about his ocean foundation and all the science we're getting into today. And let's get back into it. You know, as you mentioned, the Research Institute, you know, your Ocean Foundation, which and you're taking off for Panama to go, you know, tag some black marlin. Now, let's talk about that because I'm really fascinated. I love the tagging part because here where I am in Monterey or near Monterey, we have tagging at Pacific Pelagics. It's like a Stanford right. Hopkins. And I did some work with them in the past. And it's so right. fascinating to see a map of, let's say, whether it's where you are, where I am, and you see this little squiggly line of a turtle, shark, you name it, elephant seal. And these are things you may have a, just a brief momentary like encounter with in the water and they, they disappear. You don't know where they go, but when you see, you know, like where they go within days or hours of that, of that, of, of a typical encounter, it's fascinating, you know? And so talk about the significance of the tagging that you guys will be doing and how that ties back to the research, conservation, et cetera. I was going to mention, you know, the, the access to these oceanic animals is very difficult when I was talking about the uh, diving and teasing because you can't see any of these animals in captivity. And, and that's why we go to the open ocean to go and find them because that's the only place you're going to find them. The, the Eastern Pacific generally uh, from, from Mexico, well, Southern California down to Peru is one of the most productive pieces of water in the world. Um, very high productivity, primary productivity. So a lot of uh, bait fish and a lot of predators. And from a commercial fishing perspective, there are a lot of the you know, highly valued species like tunas, yellowfin and big eye tunas in particular. And more recently, sharks, of course, have been you know, targeted there too. But in terms of the billfish, the billfish have become worldwide, wherever they're found, uh, a more uh, desirable species from a recreational and therefore, I call that ecotourism perspective. Yeah. Um, and, and many countries now have recognized the value of the living animal, whether it's a single shark, a single grouper, or a single sailfish. Um, these fish, as they become rarer and, and they become overfished, therefore there's a need for the better management, better conservation. Governments are realizing how valuable these fish are becoming. The problem in Central America is that... Um, these fish are highly, well, all over the world, they're highly migratory. But when you have a fish that passes from Panama to Costa Rica to El Salvador and Guatemala and, and up to Mexico, and some countries recognize the fish um, and will say, you know, these fish are, you, you can't kill them. Um, and then the, the neighboring country doesn't have the same regulation. You release a fish, it gets killed next door and sold for, you know, 50 bucks whereas a blue marlin is worth $5,000 every time it's caught. 
Um, mm-hmm. You've got to get everybody online. You've got to have a, a regional approach to the management of this, this shared resource. But what's missing is the science. And we are just embarking because it's, it's so expensive to do. We're just embarking on this massive uh, five-year project in Panama and Costa Rica to learn more about, especially the black marlin. Um, and with that data, be able to go to the respective government agencies and say, hey, look, you guys in Panama, you have to talk to your neighbors in Ecuador and Costa Rica and, and further up the line and get on board with this project because the value of sport fishing is is 100 times greater than the value of killing any of these animals. Yeah. And, and it, it's, it's the only way that they, they can <clears throat> theoretically understand the true value to their respective uh, economies um, of these fish. And as you know well, Sport fishing is largely non-consumptive. You know, there is some mortality. Not every fish lives, but um, our studies have shown, other people's studies have shown that billfish caught on circle hooks have a very high survivability, like 95 to 98%. Right. That's an acceptable loss. You know, um, and many fish have been, through the tagging exercises, have been shown to survive and proceed and live, you know, long lives after they've been caught and released. You mentioned that the the sort of variability of the, the, the tracks that um, all these fish use. And they are different. Um, the billfish actually are, are probably the, the least, what's the word I'm going to look for, least impressive in terms of, a, a, you know, what we're looking for is some kind of a cy- cyclical nature of these uh, migrations. The sharks, very de- the, the, the reason for this study and, and why it's a long-term study, like all of our work, uh, is because uh, sharks in particular are long-lived animals slow-growing. The billfish are, you know, faster-growing, shorter-lived animals, um, but they, they have risen to prominence uh, wherever they are found because of, of this new, the, the ability to be sustainably used um, effectively yeah. in many countries now. And mm-hmm. the socioeconomic value of them has, has severely positively impacted the economies of many developing countries in particular. Yeah. I love that story. And mm-hmm. I, a lot of folks I've had on the podcast, like you from around the world, have dedicated themselves to helping local communities, whether it's in Indonesia, Peru, Panama, et cetera, to understand the economic value right. of the ecotourism you know, aspect right. of the, the animals they have. And from folks like us, like I, I want to say us, like you and I, who are who love these animals, who lay awake and think about them at night, but also like from the biological and ecological perspective, like the tagging is so cool because not only do you get to see kind of their movements like at scale, but in some of the stuff you're doing, you have like accelerometers where you're seeing how fast these things go. You have these depth profiles where, oh, geez, every like day at some certain period of time, they dive down to a thousand feet or whatever. So you get this little glimpse with the tagging that you're doing into like the daily routine of these animals that again you hardly ever see that you may fish for years and then just catch one right. it's so fascinating i mean here where i am one of my favorite animals that we track and we i mean in the local area is elephant seals you know right. you hardly mm-hmm. ever see them only we're on the beach these things are you know 1500 pounds are gigantic i've right. only seen two ever in the wild like surfing or out fishing and they're very hard to see but they do some amazing things not just like the the ground they cover in the pacific here but they'll have these depth, the dive profiles. These things will sit at the surface for like 20 minutes, dive to like 2,000 feet, 
right? Yep. For like 12 minutes or something crazy, come back up for 20 and just keep doing that, you know? And you're just, you just can't imagine this animal that just lays in the beach in the sun for a good chunk of the year is doing that, you know? So these, the tagging stuff you guys do, the data you collect from this, it's just so fascinating to look at. It is. And uh, you're right about, you know, you're getting a lot of uh, what we call habitat use out of the these tags as well. Uh, not just the geographical uh, displacement of the animal. But, um, and the limiting factor here again is the cost, you know, the cost of the tag, yeah. the cost of satellite time, cost of deployment. So this project with um, Tropic Star Lodge down in Panama, a place I've, I've fished yep. for, you know, 25 years, 28 years, written a book about it. Um, you know, they, they are part of the, um, the sort of uh, cooperative deal that we've, we've struck to help, be able to defray some of the expenses of doing this and have a PhD student down there full time, a master's student down there all the time, um, and run this 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 project. So um, it's a three way project with ourselves, with Nova Southeastern, and with uh, Panama. And uh, we got off to a great start. The accelerometer um, data has been fascinating, especially in really showing how the inter the um, the, the billfish interact with the thermocline, uh, which is very shallow mm. in the eastern Pacific. And actually, it's an area of depleted oxygen as well that causes uh, what they call habitat compression, where the surface waters are well oxygenated, deeper waters are not, boundaries are around 50 meters, and how the billfish bounce in and out of the, the high oxygen to low oxygen for a shorter time back up, etc. This use of the, the that boundary layer has never been shown before. Um, oh. Anyways, it's all pretty cool. And another interesting thing we're looking at in the Eastern Pacific is the use of fish aggregating devices um, mm. and, and what sort of uh, fidelity some of these top predators have to um, these human, the human impact of fish aggregating devices on the, the movement of these animals. Does it impede their movement or does it um, you know, affect fisheries in neighboring countries, etc.? So interesting. One of the other cool studies, though, back in the Atlantic side of Mexico we're doing uh, is on whale sharks. Here again is another example of uh, a large pelagic animal that used to be hunted for fins, liver, and all that stuff that has now become one of the most popular ecotouristic uh, destinations off yeah. uh, Cancun, east of Mejeres there. And these aggregations that are annual, they're very predictable. Uh, they last three months of the year have just been opened up to all kinds of, of viewing opportunities through ecotourism, through snorkeling, not even through scuba diving. And we've been tagging with a Mexican counterpart, some of these whale sharks to find out where they, where they are. We, we're doing a documentary about it right now. Nice. And Rafael de la Parra is attaching spot tags to the dorsal fins of the whale sharks in the water, diving using a scuba tank. And while we were doing this in July this year, filming, one that we tagged the previous year called Milo came by a male about 32 feet long, came right by our group. And he had just done, and we, we, we checked his track that day. He'd done about 8,500 miles since we put that tag on. Wow. And it, was, it was surreal. <laughs> it was surreal to have him swim right around us. It was just uncanny, you know, with his oh, tag. Yeah. That's very, amazing. Very gratifying. <laughs> oh, indeed. Indeed. And I can only imagine, I mean, after a lifetime of being with these types of animals and having those moments, you know, I can imagine when you saw, 
that big whale shark that you know come by you just that that moment of just the feeling you got of just like wow you know amazing just like those those moments are so precious that's why we get in the water it's why you work so hard to you know travel and get in the water when it's not it's you know hard out whatever it might be just to have those moments i mean so cool and the the other bonus about that particular spot is that um there's so many giant manta rays there mixed in with the whale sharks. They, they can oh, wow. outnumber the whale sharks. And it's just, you don't, you don't get that opportunity these days to, to dive with, with these big 18-foot wide, 20-foot wide manta rays right. up in the shallow water feeding. And they're, and they're jumping and doing all their cool stuff. Jeez, but um, I think while we're still on the, on the subject of research, probably the most meaningful study we've done in the last decade has been on the, the Western Atlantic population of mako sharks and mm. a fish that we don't see that often right here in the Central Caribbean, but in the Western Caribbean, off Mexico and in the Gulf of Mexico, there are a lot. And so um, we access them, we tagged a lot, also in Ocean City, Maryland, for comparison. And there seem to be two, well, the two populations seem to behave quite differently. Um, but the apart from the tracks, and of course, more tens of thousands of miles done per year, as we've seen with other pelagic animals. What was the, the sort of byproduct of this whole study was the very high mortality rate we had with the sharks in terms of they being caught. And uh, we knew they were caught and killed because the tag ended up on land. And it was 30%, Josh, of these fish were being killed. Oh, jeez. Um, so out of our total sample of 110 that we, we tagged, um, you know, 30% died. And this... This sent off all kinds of alarm bells within uh, fishery managers. This this rate of um, exploitation was ten times higher than previously estimated by NIMS or NOAA. Wow! And so they changed the regulations pretty quickly. They upped the minimum size um, from fifty odd inches to eighty inches, and they mandated you know if you're a commercial fisherman, mako is alive on haulback, your long line or whatever, you have to let them go. That, of course, is hard to enforce, but it's a step yep. in the right direction. Yeah. But now, makers have been listed under CITES Appendix 2, um, yep. and there's going to be, um, you know, a strengthening of the protection, the protection for makers because of this re- research work. So that's, that's why we do this, is to yeah. make a meaningful change. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. awesome, man. That's a great story, a big, great byproduct of of your work, you know, to for to expose, you know, what was happening that nobody, you know, the, the powers that be, NIMPS, NOAA, et cetera, didn't know about. Right. So you're talking about Panama pretty soon, yeah. next week. What mm-hmm. else for 2020, you know, fresh start, new year, you got a lot of neat uh-huh. stuff happening with the brand. Any other big, big fun stuff on the horizon for you this year? Well, we're going to continue doing our, our whale shark projects uh, in July again, and um Probably do that for five or six years. Again, you know, with a long-lived animal, slow-growing animals, uh, you, you need to do spend a full decade learning about their natural history, their movements, their reproductive rates. Um, and sharks a bit, have always been a main focus for the GHRI. Uh, Dr. Mahmoud Shivji, who is the director of the GHRI and um, uh, with whom we worked very closely for the last 20 years, we just celebrated our 20th anniversary last year, Oh, nice. he, he's a geneticist and so has been studying um, the white shark genome. He's uh, studying the hammerhead and mako uh, genomes now to learn more about what makes a shark a shark and, and why they have these peculiar properties or abilities to, um, of like rapid wound healing. Um, you know, on our study on stingrays here, when we do our 
biannual census, we take a fin clip and we notice that the, the fin clips heal remarkably quickly. Yeah. Photographic evidence of, of white sharks from all these uh, dive interactions now and other species show that um, a shark wounded one week and the next week it's, it's um, you know, well on the way to healing. Um, what genes control this process? Yeah. What genes control the resistance of, of sharks and rays to getting tumors and cancer and stuff like that? Hmm. Um, how is this related to their, their basic biological buildup, which is long life, slow growing, uh, very slow reproductive rate, right. um, which has been the cause of their demise. You overfish them. They don't have that reproductive capacity to bounce back and respond to uh, le levels of high extraction like bony fish do. So yeah. that's, that's, that's an ongoing thing. We're, we're going to be working on that for forever um, and, and spread it to different species. But um, it's all relevant, and hopefully some of this information may have some spin-off benefits towards uh, better human health um, cures for you know faster heating rates and prevention of, of cancers and stuff like that. So yeah, kind of exciting. Oh yeah, that's fascinating, mm -hmm. man. I love that, and that's that's just very cool. Well, guy, I want to say you know thank you for a couple things. One, sharing your time and stories with with me today, and for everybody listening. And two, thanks for for doing good for the ocean. You know, it's it's one thing to it's it's very challenging to grow any business anywhere, but then to do it. Um, based on your passion and then to funnel really the outcome of that back into the ocean, doing all the different stuff you're doing, man. I just appreciate it. You know, I know everybody listening does too. So, so thanks for a bunch of different stuff today. <laughs> yeah, you're very welcome. It's like I said, it's very gratifying. We have, you know, a huge body of, of volunteers. Um, we, we're very cooperative. We work with a lot of other like-minded research organizations, conservation groups, fishing clubs, uh, all over the world, and so it's, it's that's a real fun of this whole um, this whole journey, so to speak. Um, and the fun for me is is being out on the water, in the water, with my family and friends, um, yeah. and and just enjoying being out there and learning something new every day. Yeah, hundred percent. Well, keep it up, man. I appreciate your time guy for sharing with us and all that you do, man. So, so thank you so much and have a great trip to Panama and a really great, uh, 2020. Thank you very much. And just a quick note to thank all the people who support the brand and the foundation. And, uh, in your area, you can do your part to help all the other research and conservation groups that, um, need your help. So good luck everybody. And, uh, and fish responsibly. <laughs> yeah, you got it, man. Okay, guy. Thank you so much. All right. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to another podcast episode. Can't do it without you. If you like what you heard, would really appreciate you sharing the podcast with people you know who might enjoy the stories that we hear and the guests we have on. And of course, even better, reduce plastic, do something good for the ocean and for each other. Thanks again. We'll catch you on the next episode.